So if you look with me again at Ephesians 6, 4, I want you to notice a couple things there, and then we'll pray uh, that God would give grace as we seek to be faithful to these commands. In the previous week, we discussed this command is specifically to who? I'm just pretending we're in an interactive church. Danny told you to clap this morning, so then I was like, hey, if we can clap, we can probably talk. And the question is, can we clap? I don't know. So the command here, the instructions are to who? Fathers. Specifically to fathers. And we looked at last week, fathers are to think first and foremost about their character. They are to bring up or to nourish their children in the Lord, in Christ. Uh, And that is given a negative command. As they are doing that, they are not to be those who provoke or to stir anger in their children. They are to do so in the character of God. And as I reference to my children often, uh, Daddy has two tools as he is seeking to bring you up in Christ. Two tools, and they're in your verse right there. A father is given two tools by Christ as he is to be one who instructs and disciplines. Uh, Fathers are given a very specific command about your character. You are to bring them up in the Lord, and you are to do so not in provoking anger. You're to think about the character in which Christ has called you to live in all things. And then you are given two tools to do so as you seek to disciple and to raise your children, discipline and instruction. And so this morning we're going to discuss the first discipline, uh, the first tool of parenting here addressed specifically to fathers, but important for all of us as parents, whether you are a mother or a father, and given to us in grace in that it reflects God's love for us and discipline. So let's pray that God would give clarity to the teaching of his word, uh, that he would give clarity to our hearts, that we would receive it rightly, and that we would rest our hope fully in what he has done, and by faith seek to live in what he has commanded. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. Thank you, Lord, as we think about fatherhood, uh, we have your creation purposed to point us to you, Lord. We are, we are only as fathers seeking to be a reflection of your goodness and your care as believers. I pray you would give grace, Lord, as there are many fathers with us that seek to live in that way. Uh, many mothers who seek to live as a light uh, of your grace. And many Christians who seek to live as ambassadors and reconcilers in Christ. I pray, Father, as we seek to reflect you in all things because of your grace and your faithfulness, uh, that you would help us to do so, that you would give us hearts that are willing to hear your word, that by your spirit you would apply your word to our hearts, and that you would change us, Father, not satisfying all of our desires in this moment, but you would continue in faithful discipline of your people, that we might be made holy and blameless as you have planned and purposed in your Son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So as I said earlier, fathers have two tools listed here as discipline and instruction. As their task and their goal is to bring their children up in the Lord, they are to think about not just how they interpret discipline and instruction, but how God applies those things. If you notice, as you look at the passage, it says that they would bring them up, as we looked at last week, nourish them, feed them, uh, help them to mature in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
And so there is a lot going on in that sentence. It's about what you are to do. What are you to do? You're to nourish, to mature, to give your children what they need to grow. And you are to do so in discipline and instruction. And all of that is under the arena of Christ, who Christ is and what he has done and accomplished. So that's way too much to make it through in one Sunday. So second Sunday in, we're going to make it through the word discipline. So if you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, as we're seeking to understand God's discipline of his children, Hebrews chapter 12 would be the most helpful place for us to turn. As we think about the two tools in which he has instructed us, discipline, which is training with purpose alongside with correction. As we're thinking about that type of discipline, as God defines it, it is a training alongside that gives correction, gives instruction, moves them forward. We want to know what does that look like? What are we to do if we're seeking to be fathers who bring up our children in the discipline of the Lord? You might be sitting here this week, depending where your heart is, and you would go, great, it's about fathers again. What does that have to do with me? I'm not a father. Uh, maybe some of you are young men and you don't know if you're going to be a father. Many of you are ladies and you will never be a father. And so what then do we do with these type of instructions? Well, praise God. He says, bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. So if you're not a father, you're not just reflecting on how you act this out, but you're reflecting on what God has done and how he loves you in discipline. You are resting in the truth of what Christ accomplishes in discipline, uh, what God the Father does through discipline in your own life, and that you might encourage those who work out the tools of discipline in the lives of others. Here commanded specifically to fathers, but true also to mothers. And as a church as a whole, we all play part in this, in the discipline and instruction of our children, and how we encourage one another, how we move one another forward. We want all that to be rooted in the Lord. I know many of you often give advice, and you give advice because people ask it of you. And so if you are helping people to understand in the raising of their children, are you doing so rooted in your ideas of discipline and instruction, your ideas of the goals of parenting, or are you reflecting on the goal of parenting is to mature, to feed, to instruct that they might grow? And the means of parenting are discipline and instruction, as God would carry out those tools. We want to have a biblical frame of reference as we seek to understand God's design in these things. So as we seek to do that, I'd encourage you to write down, to remember, to keep it in your car, to write it on your doorposts, to hang it from your eyelids, to do whatever you can to remember these instructions. Because if you are a parent, this is where you live right now, right? You often hear people say, I got this life verse or that life verse. The circumstances of your life change all the time. Right? If you were 16 when you decided your life verse, and now you're a grown man and you're a father, I'm pretty sure your life verse wasn't at that point Ephesians 6.4, but your life verse now is because you're a father. This is a verse that must dictate your life. If you're a believer, you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You belong to him. So this is your life verse. This discusses how your father loves you, how he disciplines you. This is his instruction to you about discipline. And so let's look at at Hebrews chapter 12, 3 through 13, as we're thinking, how do we apply the tool of discipline if we're seeking to mature our children as under Christ? Hebrews 12, 3 through 13. 
First, let's look at verses 3 through 5. Consider the severity of punishment in Christ endured for your sin. Consider the severity of punishment Christ endured for your sin and your sonship in Christ. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you ha- have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. First, we're commanded to consider Christ, to have a clear perspective of God's love for us. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In the context of Hebrews, it is a people who are undergoing much persecution. Uh, They are having a lot of things taken from them. They are being persecuted by Rome. They're being persecuted by Jews. They are living in a very unpleasant point in history. Persecution is moving in the Roman Empire from specifically being at the Jews to being at Christians, who at that time were looked at by the Romans as a oft sect or a cult of Judaism. And so they want to crush this. And so these Christians at the time are suffering. They're suffering greatly. They're suffering so much they're considering, can't we just go back to being Jews? Isn't that the same God? Can't we just go back to that system and still worship? And the author of Hebrews works to clarify it is not the same. This is, this is the finish of God's plan. The time has come in the appropriate time and that the Messiah who was promised has come and those things are a shadow of what was to come and now it's here. You cannot go back to worship those things that are merely a shadow when Christ has come. And as he encourages them, as they are weary and faint-hearted, he says, consider him who endures from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Christ so that your emotional state might not be one of weariness or faint-heartedness, one that is ready to surrender, one that is ready to give up, one that's ready to say, I can't do this anymore right? One that's weary, one that says, I'm too tired, it's been too long. One that's faint-hearted, one that says, no, I'm going to die, literally feel like I'm going to die, right? Maybe you've had times like this in your life where you felt like, I am going to die. I remember one specific moment of my life when I had gallstones and and I felt like I was going to die and I'm like in the middle of the night and I'm green and I feel like I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm going to die. My wife is a nurse. Praise God I have a wife who's a nurse because she walks in. She goes, you're going to die, but it's not going to be tonight. <laughs> Go to bed. Right? Some of you and God's gift to you. Uh, maybe you're better men than me, so you need more encouragement. And like, it's okay, baby. That's not what I need. I need a woman who says, wake up. You're not going to die. You might pass out, but you might as well do it in bed and sleep for the rest of the night. Calm down. Clarity is often what we need when we are weary and faint-hearted. You think about our society. We talk about being weary and faint-hearted often. We talk about not being able to press on, not being able to go. In the midst of luxury and vacation and cars and phones and indoor plumbing and all kinds of computers and shipping that can get to your house in two days or less. 
You're frustrated by things about, I had to wait 10 minutes for my $5 coffee, and then they didn't say my name right at the end. I can't take this anymore. What kind of world am I living in? A bougie one. You're living in an easy world. You are living in a world of a lot of luxury and a lot of gifts and a lot of ease. And as, as the author of Hebrews is writing to these Christians, uh, they are not living in that. And what does he say to them in their difficulty? Wake up. Yeah, I know they're taking your possessions. Yeah, I know they're putting you in prison. Yes, I know your life is difficult. Wake up. You have Christ. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider the sufferings of Christ. As you feel that life is making you weary and faint-hearted, you think that things are so hard. I know in our society it is often encouraged. you got to meet people where they are if they're weary and faint-hearted. And the author of Hebrews meets them where they are, and he says, Christian, you're in Christ. Consider that. Consider the reality of your life. Your feelings are not dictators of truth. My feelings are weary and faint-hearted, but the facts are you've not been pierced for the wrath of God against you. That's what he says. He says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Christ so that the regular things of your life don't progress in you such a way that you think I'm weary and faint-hearted. Things are difficult. Some of us need to repent. It's too late. We have grown weary and faint-hearted in luxury and ease, in comfort and safety because that's where we're at. We don't consider Him enough. We consider the luxury and we don't consider the burden of Christ. It says, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What does he say? As you're being persecuted, as you feel like your enemies are coming around you, and for the Hebrews, it's not even you feel like, as your enemies literally are coming around you, persecuting you. He says, recognize as you're resisting sin in this, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have not yet died for this. And not as though they wouldn't. That's what just finished in Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, these people lived for Christ to what? The point of shedding their blood. They died. The reference is Isaiah, who was cut in half for being a prophet of Israel, proclaiming to them the truth, proclaiming the reality of the gospel. And what did they do? They cut him in half. How could Isaiah proclaim such things? Look at your handout. You have Hebrews 53, or sorry, Isaiah 53, uh, and you have verse 11. I'm going to read for context verses 4 through 6 and then 10 and 11. Isaiah wrote before he was martyred for proclaiming the Messiah. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, he says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. And he shall prolong his days. 
and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And this is in your handout. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. What does it say? When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. It was the will of the Lord that would prosper in his hand. It was out of the anguish of Christ in dying and the anguish of God as he put him to death that by Christ's knowledge, the righteous one, many will be accounted righteous. They will be made his. The suffering of Christ as he lived on earth, not just the crucifixion, but Christ as he lived as a child, disciplined by imperfect parents. Christ as he grew to be a man who was perfect, whose siblings did not like because of his perfection. As Christ lived as a man and was hated by many more than loved him. Hated because of the clarity in which he preached the truth of the Messiah. Which others saw as a threat because of his perfection in both living and declaring the truth of God. And Christ suffered at the hands of his enemies to make them his friends. Christ suffered and died at the hands of the Romans and the Jews that the Romans and the Jews might put their hope in Christ. Christian, before you do anything in life, you must consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you might not grow weary and faint-hearted because you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This could reference Christ in the garden as he feels overwhelmed by the reality of what's coming. Christ goes to the garden and what happens? He is in such human anxiety, such, such fear of what is coming in one sense, that he is, he is literally sweating blood. That he is literally overwhelmed in a human sense. And yet we see in the perfection of God the overwhelming facts of what were before him. Not just his feelings. He knows he's going to the cross. And the facts that are before him. He says, not my will, but your will be done. Christ rests in the will of God and suffers at the hands of sinners that we might be made sons. And that's the last thing he says there in the section we're looking at, verse 5. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. Consider the suffering of Christ that you might have a clear perspective on what you perceive as your suffering and what is your actual suffering. Consider Christ who has suffered. Don't overwhelm yourself with our society that wants to proclaim to all men you are suffering and that's not the way it should be. There must be a solution outside of the gospel, outside of Christ, where the gospel is clear. Christ is the only solution. And only in Christ will you be called a son of God. Because of Christ and His substitutionary atonement that He has paid the penalty for our sin, we are now no longer considered those who are children under the wrath of God, as Ephesians 2 proclaimed to us, but you are considered sons. You are part of God's plan and purpose. God has, because of Christ, determined to love you. He is not deciding 
if he will love you or not. First and foremost, as we think about discipline, we want to remember that as God disciplines us, it is the severity of Christ's punishment for our sin that has bought us sonship. And as a result, God is not deciding if he will love you or not. He has determined to love you and accomplished that love in Christ. How does he discipline you? In the determined love of Christ. You are his. There is no changing that. He is not looking down at you, seeing your action and saying, today I'm going to love them because they're being very faithful and very fruitful. So they have the love of God. And then tomorrow, what happened? They slept until 11. They're just eating donuts. They never work out. They never exercise. They don't do any of the things I want them to. Right? Far worse than that. They're malicious and bitter. They're self-righteous. They're not thankful. They have everything and they don't care. You live those days. And yet God loves you. His love is determined before you, not deciding by you. The love of Christ has given a love which is determined. And so you must consider Him who loved you so much. In grace, He took the penalty for you. That you might not grow weary and faint-hearted. I know just this week I have had many conversations with many of you about the weariness and faint-heartedness in which child-rearing brings. The difficulty of disciplining difficult children. And I want to encourage you as you seek to discipline your children at times where it becomes difficult, consider Christ who has suffered on your behalf through far more than parenting that you might not grow weary and faint-hearted for what is common to man. It is difficult. I'm not diminishing the difficulty of parenting. I talked to myself many times this week, not just to many of you, about the difficulty of parenting. And we must look and remember not just its difficulty, but the determined love of God for us. He has accomplished it. He has paid the price. The wrath of God has been satisfied. But His love for you is not satisfied. He's not finished in His love for you. He has determined to love you because of Christ. He is not deciding on a daily basis whether he loves you or not. He is not satisfied in the finished work of his love in Christ. He is manifesting the finished work of Christ in you. His determined love means that he remains disciplining you out of love. Look at verses 6 through 9. Verses 6 through 9, he says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? God's love for you is not just determined. You must not just consider the sufferings of Christ and your sonship as a result, but you must remember the love of God and the legitimacy of your sonship. As you are seeking to discipline your sons and daughters, you are seeking to love them. Discipline is love. If you ignore discipline, you're not loving your child. Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. If you think you love your child, but you do not discipline your child, you don't love them. 
God's, God gives you clarity of truth. If you restrain from discipline on your child and thinking that that is an act of love, God says, you do not love them, you hate them. You are acting in hate towards them. Discipline is an act of love. And failure to discipline in love is an act of hate. A faithful father disciplines because he loves the father who disciplines him. But a father who just wants to be pleased and not progressed doesn't discipline. He just wants to please his children, not progress them. Remember, the command is to bring them up or to give progress to their life, to mature them, to feed them and grow them, that they might become adults. Too many men want to be little boys, and therefore they try to live with their children as little boys, justifying all their little boy habits and hobbies with their children. They don't want to raise men. They want to be children. So they don't want to discipline their children. They want to give them everything they want. They're not satisfied in what Christ has commanded. They're always looking to be satisfied by something else. And they use their children as a way to get what they want. You know, in your own heart, you have lived this way with your children before, and it has not satisfied you. What you think it will give you, it does not. When you look at your children as a means to get what you want, rather than a means to grow them into God's glory, you will not be satisfied. Because that is not love of them or God. That is love of yourself. That is a selfish, self-indulgent love that doesn't want to mature them and doesn't want to discipline. But you, brother, you Christian, you sister in Christ, you have been adopted as His. And He loves you. And in love, what does He do? He disciplines you. He trains you. He comes alongside your life and He creates circumstances and situations which progress you which sanctify you, which move you forward. He does not let your life be comfortable and easy in such a way that you would not progress. He comes alongside your life and puts those things in your life that will cause you to move forward in Christ, that will redirect you as you're not considering Christ, to look back to Christ, that will encourage you to move forward as you are in Christ. God is not a passive God. His love is not satisfied once in Christ. His love remains as He works in our life. The love of Christ is an ongoing discipline in the Christian life. An ongoing loving act of progress for the betterment of believers for the glory of God. That you would not remain weary and faint-hearted, but you would live in Christ. He is not satisfied to leave you in your sin, and hope for the best. He is not satisfied to hope that you figure it out when he has the truth. He instructs you in it, and he has the power to change you. He disciplines you. He's not satisfied to save you and wait for you to be in eternal glory. In love, he sanctifies. He matures you. In discipline, he trains you. All in love. What does this say? It is for discipline that you must endure because God is treating you as sons in which all have participated. If you're left without discipline, what does it say of you? You're not His. If there is no progress in your life, if you never feel a tension in your life that things must change and I can't remain where I am, right? 
When you meet a point of frustration and you feel like this is difficult, I can't live like this anymore. Why is my life always here? It is the love and grace of God that he is not leaving you to remain there. He is instructing you and giving you hope. He's causing frustration in that. That you might turn from that and run to him. He loves you as a son, and in love, he progresses his children. Legitimate children grow not because of their own efforts, because of the grace of God to infuse their efforts through discipline and instruction by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Father disciplines those he loves. And if you are his, then he will discipline you. And in verse 9, he gives us grace to say, you understand this, right? Besides this, We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? As you hear the truth that God disciplines, God loves His children in that way, He reminds you, you had an earthly father. And in that earthly father, you respected Him. You saw within your father the power and authority of your family. And I know in many ways, in many families, is not the way it is. Uh, But generally, there is a greater fear of fathers than of mothers, right? Why is that? Generally, fathers are stronger than mothers. Discipline hurts more when a father does it. Uh, Discipline is more consistent. Uh, Just being a child, generally your voice is louder, right? You get a loud voice, it's more intimidating. You're a larger human. There's lots of reasons in God's design that fathers are generally more feared than mothers. You respect them. You fear them. Why? Because they are your father. They are the one that has been an instrument of love and discipline throughout your life. And so you respect them. You you give credit to them. You recognize what they have done. And he says, shall we not much more, if we recognize that just on earth, how much more should we submit to the father of life and live? And so what he commands here is that if you are his, what does God do for you? He disciplines you. He faithfully works in your life to change you. He faithfully works in your life in such a way that as you are living in sin, by the Spirit of God and the circumstances of life, your heart meets conviction, you repent, and you live by faith in Christ. Right? He disciplines you so that actions in your life, be it physical things going on around you, or the emotional pain of conviction when you know you have sinned by the power of God through the Spirit, that your life goes, I can't live like this anymore. And you turn in Christ. That is the grace of God in the life of a believer. And so we must recognize that he proclaims this. You might say, discipline doesn't work with my kids. They respond poorly. I'm not getting the results I hoped for. It just doesn't work. It's just not, yes, I know you, you guys all have perfect children because you discipline, uh, but I discipline and I don't have perfect children. Clearly, discipline doesn't work. Well, look with me at verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Maybe you have the wrong perspective on discipline. Maybe you're, being, you're viewing discipline as an American and an American who is satisfied by instant results of everything, and you look at all of life, that it must give an instant, tangible result, or it's not working. Things must immediately satisfy where I am at and what I want, or it doesn't work, and I'm going to find something else. Christian, that's not where our hope lies. 
2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outward self is wasting away, our inward self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We do not have a shallow faith that looks for shallow results. We have a faith resting in the eternal promises and hope of Christ that looks for an eternal future. And too often we treat the discipline of God as something shallow. Right? When we see difficult things going in our life, how do we talk? We say, well, I've got to change this behavior quickly because I don't want God to keep doing this to me. And we meet the discipline of God and we go, I just got to figure out what I'm doing wrong. So he stops making me change because I don't want to change anymore. How can I just appease God so I can live in a little rut of comfort? He says, no, your hope is not in the immediate. Your hope is in the eternal. Your immediate, like all immediates, are wasting away. But the pain of that wasting away is not purposeless. This light momentary affliction in Christ is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. And so as we think about the love of God and discipline, we must think about how he has commanded us to discipline, and it is in a way that would reflect him. We must embrace the temporal effect and the enduring results of discipline. Perishing pain to produce peaceable fruit of righteousness. Look with me in verse 10. In speaking of our earthly fathers, he says, For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than present. But it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The brevity of our discipline and the longevity of His. That's what it points out here. The brevity of the discipline of parents and the longevity of the discipline of God for His children. Take comfort in verse 10. It says, For they disciplined us, how long? For a short time. Right? In old days, you had about 14 years in before you could get get them on to be matured. And because... Fathers have acted like children, then it pushed to be, oh, they got to be 18. And now more fathers act like children, and now they got to be like 26 or 35 or 42 before you can say, finally, my work is done because I just died. No, it's a short time. He says, for they disciplined us for a short time. No matter what your parenting feels like, and even if it is prolonged because of modern culture, it's a short time, right? Comfort number one. Your time as parenting is short. Don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Christ. Know this is not an unending work, no matter how you feel. This is a purposed work for the intention of teaching them the unending love of God. It's a short time. Number two, as seemed best to them. There is great comfort in this verse. This week I talked to many parents who felt like I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. I'm just trying to do what I think is best. Many times in the last 12 years of my life, I have felt like I don't know what to do. I just need to depend on what God has said. I'm trying to do my best. And do you ever feel like my best isn't good enough? Do you ever feel like a failure as a parent because I'm just trying to do what is best and I feel like it's not working and this is super hard and why can't God just regenerate my children now? 
instead of later? Why can't he just make them obey my voice now? This is too long, too difficult. I don't know what to do. What does Christ say to us here through the author of Hebrews? He says, this is earthly discipline is of a short time. And your earthly father did as best as they thought. They sought to do what they thought was best. There's great comfort in this. It is temporary, and he is not looking down on you thinking you're a perfect parent. As you look around and you see other parents and you go, I got to be a perfect parent. I got to be just like them. God doesn't look down and go, man, if you could just be a perfect parent like them. No, he looks down and he goes, they're, they're doing their best, right? In Christ, in their current circumstance, in the hope of Christ, your earthly father is doing what he thought best. That doesn't mean it's all good enough. And it means some are going to do better. Why? Because they think better. Because their hope is in Christ more. Because they have more clarity of what Christ is accomplishing. Each one does as they think best. And if your mind is dwelling in the world and trying to figure out things over here, you're not going to do as good as you might do if you were wrestling with Christ and His Word and what He has commanded and what parenting is about. If every parenting issue drives you to Google instead of to the Word of God, you might not do your best. Well, you're going to do your best, but your best is going to be hindered by the source in which you're leaning on. So Christian, there are things to take hope in here. We can do better, and our best will never match to the work of God. Right? I had loving, faithful parents who did their best, but they didn't either grow up in a Christian home. And, and we didn't grow up in churches that spoke very clearly about the discipline and instruction of children. I often look back, uh, before I was a parent, and I thought, man, my parents could have done a lot better. I, I, like the rest of my generation, started to blame all of my problems on my parents. It's not my fault. It's because they didn't do this or that or this or that. I just was comfortable in the fact that, oh, this is just passed down. It's, it's not what I did. And the reality is, with the hand my parents were dealt, that hand being me, oh, they did what they thought best. And they were faithful. And they would still say, we didn't do it all perfectly. We didn't do it all right. We're thankful for the grace of God in the lives of our children. I know many of you that grew up in homes that what they thought best was evil. It was not right. It wasn't a lack of instruction or anything else. It was they were constantly living in the world. They're trying to satisfy their gods. Maybe through you being their child and having expectations on you that were unreasonable. Maybe through you being their child and carrying out their authoritarian issues and abuse and frustration. Somehow in their warped mind, like all mankind, they justify in their own mind that what they're doing is best and they're failing. Praise God that the reality of eternity is not resting on parenting and parenting alone. That should give you hope, Christian. You should be reminded of that as you think and you look at your child and you go, everything I'm doing is going to screw them up for their whole life. What do I do? You rest on what God has said. You be true and faithful to pursue that, to know that, to understand that, to live in repentance and confession and faith with other believers that you might do better. And you trust Him who has put these children in your life right now that you might be sanctified through them. Who has given you these circumstances right now that you might live under his discipline and instruction. 
that as you meet frustration and you feel like it feels like someone is causing me pain, you can remember the God who works all things does what? He causes temporary pain for a purpose. He says, he is the perfect father. We should submit to him, verse 9, who is the father of spirits and lives. And as they seek to do their best, he disciplines us for our good. Not what we think is best. What is good? What is right? What is defined by him? And why does he do so? That we may share in his holiness. As you are living to discipline your children and you are frustrated in that and you find it difficult and you don't know how to move on, I want you to lean on the grace of God as he has given commands, but also to remember that he is disciplining you also through that. And discipline is not just an action of saying, I don't like what you're doing. I want you to stop, so I'm going to cause you pain. Discipline is love. To say what you are doing is not moving toward the holiness and the grace of God. He disciplines you perfectly. Why? Look with me again at verse 11, or rather before verse 11 and verse 10, that we may share in his holiness. So as you remember his discipline of you, you want to think about that as you are disciplining your children. This time is short. You're seeking to do your best in what God has given you. That is his word a faithful church, other believers around you. We have been given much. We have wealth and prosperity. We have many resources in which we can lean into the grace of God to be better at parenting, knowing only He always disciplines for the good that we might share in His holiness. Verse 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Take comfort in his knowledge, not only that this is for a short time and it is as seems best to them, but as you discipline, remember, discipline is for a short time and it is to yield the fruit of righteousness. How does God discipline you? He causes temporary pain, not eternal pain. Remember verse 3, Christ has taken the eternal pain. He loves you as a legitimate son. He is not punishing you. He's disciplining you. He is moving your life to say, you've got to stop returning here. I'm going to cause you pain and frustration when you return here that you might walk over here. In love, he disciplines you. And that is painful for a time. And that pain does what? It yields the fruit of righteousness. That pain reminds us where we ought to be living, where we ought to move. I don't know about you, but as a father, I don't take joy in causing pain to my children. It does not bring me joy to see my children in pain. It is unpleasant. I don't like it. I need the reminder that discipline is but for a moment. But when I discipline my children with my older kids, when I say, you're losing this ability or this consequence or this isn't going to happen, and then they look at you like, Dad! I say one of two things. Son, you're going to be a man someday and you need to get over this. Or I go... Sweetheart, I can't talk to you right now. I need to have some clarity on what God has called me to do because their little heartstrings pull me to go. I can't do that to you. You're my daughter. Don't play that. I need to be reminded this is temporary for a purpose. Why? To bring about fruit. This is not going to hurt forever. 
This is not going to be what is unending in your life. This is a current situation of life to remind you, you can't live in that situation anymore. Discipline has intention. It is not wrath. It is not punishment. It is faithful love that says you must turn from that because that will kill you. That's not how a child of God lives. That is the life of a child of wrath. And so discipline then has a purpose. Embrace the temporal effect of discipline and the enduring results. You are not disciplining in something that is going to last forever. You are disciplining so that they will run to something that does. Christ. Lastly, encouragement for fruitful response to discipline. As you consider your dis- the discipline of your own children and you want to do that in the way that God loves you and disciplines you, you must first consider Christ, that he loves you determinedly. He's not deciding by your action whether he loves you or not. Because he loves you and you're a legitimate son, he loves you in discipline. He doesn't just try to please himself in your action. He is glorified by living to help you turn from sin, to live in Christ, whether that's making your life uncomfortable so that you will run to him or giving instruction so that you resist what is uncomfortable or pleasurable in sin and run to him. He lives continually in love for you that you might run to him. He does so causing you temporary pain. Discipline is not pleasant. It is painful. It is intentionally painful. It intentionally tells you, go away from this, right? This fire is often a good example. God has given fire to warm us. You abuse fire and you stick your hand in it. What happens? You quickly pull it out because you know I'm not using that for what it's meant for. And so you have a natural inclination And God in love disciplines that you might have that inclination to say, this causes pain. And then lastly, you want to know the truth. Respond fruitfully to what he is doing. Encouragement for a fruitful response to discipline. Therefore, because God loves you determinedly, because you are legitimately his son, because a legitimate son experiences discipline that produces sanctification for a believer or maturity in a child. Because all of this is true, because you know this, because you've had an earthly father that did his best, but you know you have a heavenly father who always does what is good. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight the paths of your feet so that, you, so that what is lame might not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Remember where it started. They're faint-hearted. They're weary. They feel like they can't go on. He says, consider Christ, what he has accomplished. Consider the determined love of God for you as you are his son. Consider that those things that cause you discomfort are the grace of God, that you might run to his hope and his righteousness, that you might be made holy. And therefore, because you know God is doing that, stop whining. Please stop whining. Right? That's how my heart probably in the flesh wants to say it. But he says, therefore, do what? Lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. And move forward on the path of grace. Do not sit over here pouting in that everything is too hard, I am faint-hearted, and I am weary. Recognize that in God's love, He has directed things in your life in such a way that you might say, that is foolish, that is unfaithful. I want to return to here and return here and move forward. Too often it is that we do not think about 
the purpose of God's discipline, and we frustrate ourselves by doing what is lame. And I mean that in an American sense. What is lame? We go, I don't know why God's doing this. And other Christians are like, I think it's because you continue to live in this sin, and then you don't repent. You just go, oh yeah, that was bad, I'm sorry. And then you go back. But repentance means turning away from that, and in faith, walking forward in what Christ has commanded you. But you keep being lame. You keep going, I don't know what else to do. I just go back here and I do the same sin. And I get the same results. And on worldly standards, we say, what does that define you as? Someone who returns to the same thing and gets the same results and it fails? You're an idiot. (laughs) In biblical standards, we know someone who returns to the same thing and gets the same results, what are they? Dead in their sin. They have no option. They don't know. They don't care. They don't want anything else. They know it hurts. They know it's not right. But like a dog returns to their vomit, they go, man, that was horrible. It made me sick. Maybe I'll go back and eat some more. Christian, you're not that. You've been made alive in Christ. So he says, knowing all of this, what do you do? Stop having droopy hands. Strengthen your weak knees. And live by faith. Hear what he has commanded. Make your path straight. Move forward so that what is lame, not meaning lame in the way I've used it four or five times, but what is partially hindered may not be completely broken. What he is correcting might be healed. He's saying, yes, I know it hurts. And I'm going to put the bone back into place and I'm putting a cast on it. Please move forward. Don't let what is hindered be that which becomes fully broken. Don't let it be put out of joint. Rather, let it be healed. So as we talk about earthly parenting, you know this response, or maybe you don't. Maybe uh, God has just given children to me that when I go, hey, this is what needs to happen. I need you to go inside, and I need you to clean up your room. Oh, I... (laughs) Immediately, their knees are weak, Their arms are drooping. It's like my children read this verse. They said, I want dad to have a very clear illustration of what it looks like to respond poorly to discipline. So they had a meeting and got together and Avery said, guys, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. We need to have droopy arms and weak knees. And every child in the Dietrich household has just continued the pattern to go, when I don't want to respond rightly, I want dad to understand what Hebrews 12 means, so I'm going to go, why? Maybe it's just my children. But I think God in grace knows and sees that there is even a posture, a posture of poor response to discipline. So what do you do with all this information? What do you do with the reality of knowing that Christ has commanded you, that you are his legitimate son, that he loves you and disciplines you, that that discipline is painful, and that you might respond in one of two ways, saying, I'm going to turn from this and do what Christ has said, or I'm just going to kind of become a little schlup of nothing that has no hope. You walk your children through this passage, not when you're disciplining them. You instruct them, right? You have two tools. Maybe your kids don't know how to respond to discipline because you just resort to discipline and you never instruct. Maybe you feel frustrated because God has given you the grace of both tools and you live for all of your pleasures. And then when your pleasures aren't happening and those little heathens start to misbehave, you go, what does God command me to do? Discipline them. I'm going to go discipline them. 
I don't like it when my life's uncomfortable. Maybe you need to rest not only on discipline, but instruction. So take this passage and be reminded of your hope in God's discipline of you and teach your children that they might know and understand the love and grace of God and his purposes in discipline. So in our home, this carries out and that I try to take opportunity with each of the kids to discuss this passage with them outside of discipline. And then within discipline, I remind them, what tools has God given daddy? Discipline and instruction. We had one child for about a year said discipline and destruction. <laughs> I kept pointing back to the text. That's not what it says, sweetheart. Let's go back to the text. It's cute that you say that, but kind of not really. Discipline and instruction. God has given daddy two tools. And I have sought to give you instruction. And I know I don't do that perfectly, but I'm seeking to instruct you. And you have chosen to not hear that instruction. So as a loving father, I am going to discipline you. And there's going to be discipline because I love you and I don't want you to live like that. I don't want you to be a fool or faithless. I want you to have hope in Christ. And God has loved you enough to give you a mommy and daddy who are a picture of God's authority to you. So we're going to have discipline. But after discipline, that doesn't mean life is over. That means we've been given wisdom by the grace of God. And and we want to move on from discipline. We want to be faithful and understand So you're going to get disciplined, and we're not living here. We're moving on from here because we trust what God has said. It doesn't happen in that. I don't have a script, right? But that's my intention. That's what I'm walking through. And honestly, that's what I've rehearsed in my own mind through Hebrews 12 and through Ephesians 6, 4, trying to be diligent to bring them up as God has. He has purposed and planned and intentionally prepared for your discipline. So I try to intentionally prepare for that, try to take my own heart and go, This is not forever. This seems outrageous what's going on right now, but moving on, we're going to move forward. So lastly, point B, because that was all one point, point A, point B, listen to God's word about discipline of your children. I've got a bunch of Proverbs put there to help you and encourage you. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 19, 18, which is helpful in a paradigm. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. It means don't discipline out of frustration. Don't discipline because I'm mad. Don't discipline because I want to end you. I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Lie. God brought them into this world. You take them out. You've committed murder. You're going to go to prison and possibly have the wrath of God over you because of your faithlessness. Okay, just for clarity, not to get too serious on you, but that's how things are. Uh, Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. A paradigm that I try to live between. Discipline your son because there is hope. Don't seek to put him to death. Don't deceive yourself that discipline is like putting him to death. He will not die. He will bear the fruit of righteousness and God will help him to understand the grace as you seek to do so as Christ. Proverbs 22, 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. I don't know how many times I've heard a mom say they have a good heart. No, God says their heart is deceitful and folly is bound up in it. They do not have a good heart. Look at me, mothers. Your children do not have good hearts. Somebody's got to tell you. These are the facts. I don't care about your feelings. I do care about your feelings, moms. 
But God has made clear your feelings are illegitimate. The facts are, their hearts are deceitful and fully, folly, foolishness, all kinds of things are bound up in their little deceitful hearts. Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Short time with an intention. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. We could spend time looking at all the philosophies of child rearing in the world and refute them and say they're wrong. But I think if you just take these few Proverbs that I've put here, intending for you to read and to reflect on and to look back to, you don't need all the philosophies of the world. And many of them are rebuked quickly just right here. You don't need children that are wild and free. You need children that are cultivated for the glory of God. God never created creation intending for it to be wild and free. Even in perfection, it was intended to be cultivated by man for his glory. There's one. I'm not going to go into all the others. Let's pray that God would give us grace as we seek to be parents that are faithful. I want to encourage you, a 55-minute sermon cannot fix you. It can only help you in instruction. And I trust that God is faithful. He will discipline you in this area that you might glorify him more. So let's pray that he would be so faithful to do so. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good. I thank you, Father, that your plans always carry out in your process. I thank you that you know appropriate timing for all things. I thank you that you have sent your son at the right time. I thank you that you have saved us. I thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to our own devices, uh, but you have called and comforted us in Christ. I thank you, Father, that we can rest on your grace in Christ, uh, that we are not those who live awaiting your wrath, but we are sons who live under your discipline. I pray you would help us as we seek to do so in a way that honors and glorifies you in our own lives and with our own children. I pray you would remind us of your intention, Lord. I pray that you would help us not to be weak and whiny Christians, that we would know that while we were once weak, Christ died for us, that we might not live weak anymore. That while we were once sinners, Christ died for us, that we might not live in sin anymore. And that while we were once enemies of yours, Christ died for us, that we might be called sons. I pray through your instruction in your word and the grace of your providence through discipline, you would help us to live as those who are strong in Christ, saved in Christ, and sons in Christ that we might glorify you forever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.